Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. Have you ever wondered what Franciscan nuns might have in common with computer memory? Or have you ever wondered if a piece of artwork can know how much it's worth and tell you in real time? Well, probably not. And if not, don't feel too bad because you're probably not a conceptual artist. But luckily, this week's guest is. So please stay tuned as our guest Rachel Lara and I talk about her artwork, her history as a technologist, and the necessary sacrifices of making the leap into the art world. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And this week we have uh, a really cool, you call yourself a conceptual artist, yeah, Rachel? That's right, yes. So so her name is Rachel Ara, and thank you so much for being on the show today, Rachel. How are you doing? That is great. Great to be here. Thanks. You are remoting in from Jersey in the UK, yeah? Yeah, Jersey Channel Islands, small island near France, but it's UK, yes. So we are uh, definitely beaming internationally for this episode. It's always okay. always fun to do that. <laughs> it's the original Jersey, isn't it? Because New Jersey's named after it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, our Jersey is uh, far less elegant, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wanted to jump right in. Uh, you know, we we actually got introduced to you from a, a former uh, state of the art guest, Carla Gannis, um, and she was really excited about this piece, and we got really excited about this piece called uh, "Transubstantiation Transubstantiation of Knowledge" um, that you were showing at the Victorian Albert Museum in September of this year. Um, and uh, so, I guess first and foremost, can you just kind of give listeners a little bit of a a walkthrough? I mean, it's quite an in depth piece, but can you give a high level overview of what this piece was? Yeah, it, I mean, it is an in-depth piece. and I mean, just to describe it physically, basically, it's set in the medieval resource galleries at the Victorian Albert Museum. I mean, to put it in perspective, it's probably one of the biggest arts and crafts museums in um, the world. So they've got this beautiful gallery with lots of statues and a church. So when you go into this um, gallery, then you're given a pair of HoloLens. And then an audio story starts, and that will narrate the story of the nuns. And then you'll actually see within the gallery, because it's mixed reality, you'll see the holograms of these nuns wandering about. And then if you delve further back into the collections, then you'll see sort of bits we put into the collections that sort of pull into the story, substantiate the story. I can then go into each component. It's quite complicated. (laughs) Yeah, so... Should I I carry on talking? (laughs) Well, well, uh, we can explore all of it, but... But uh, what is what is kind of the guts? What is the narrative? What's the story that you're really trying to tell with this? You know, that's a, that's a really good. Um, it's sort of many stories, but the idea behind it was was, I guess, quite a feminist angle. It was looking at the nuns who would have lived in this church 500 years ago and how they were sort of um, taken advantage of by the capitalist system in making these gold threads for the merchants. And then I was looking at how the women in the V&A again, sort of very intelligent women like the nuns, sort of, in a sense, the underpayment of people in museums, how they were taken advantage of. And because I come from a sort of old computer background, 
I was looking at the um, old magnetic core memories that were woven by women in the 1960s. And I was I sort of created this sci-fi thing where these nuns were actually, I mean, their sort of looms did look like these cores, but very large ones. So how their knowledge might have got transferred into these threads, like the data was held on these magnetic cores. So that sort of captured my imagination to pull this story together. Yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting. I mean, for for the nerds listening, I mean the the throwback to the old the RAM, right? The the, the old RAM, the grids of of wires that they're actually putting bits of metal on as storage of information. Um, yeah, I mean, that like I said, this has really caught my imagination. Why why are Franciscan nuns kind of why are they the center of this narrative for you? How did you land on this? I think because when I did the residency at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is a residency about data, is um, we could actually uh, do an installation for the London Design Festival. And it's something you don't want to turn down because you get about 160,000 people through the museum in about 10 days. Um, and then you can choose a spot within the museum. <clears throat> and that was the spot that I chose was in the San Chiara Chapel. Hmm. And that's the sort of 15th century chapel that we acquired. You don't ask how the English acquire things, but anyway, it <laughs> happened to come from Florence and it is now in London. So I chose that spot to do the installation. And then I started delving into the history of the Franciscan nuns. And I mean, what was fascinating for me at that time in one and eight um, Florentine women were in monasteries at mm. that time were in convents and they were very highly intelligent women. And it sort of struck a chord that these intelligent women were just being used for their labor and not for their knowledge. And that sort of struck chords with what I've been finding around the Victorian Albert Museum that predominantly employs women, I think, because of the low pay. Yeah. And then and then when I delve further into the threads, because the nice thing about being at a museum, they have all the experts. So you can just pick up a phone and say, I want to speak to a non-expert. <laughs> and someone pops down to the studio and then they start telling you more about the history. Yeah. So what is so? Can you tell me a little bit more about sort of the parallels you're drawing to um, the women that are that are still there at the VNA and sort of what your experiences there have been? Well, I think how I started off my residency because my residency was there. I was there to look at data because of my tech round, background in technology, and um, I had a year's residency. So the first thing I did was I just set up interviews, and within the first three months, I had about sort of fifty interviews with people, just finding out about the data in the museum. Hmm. wondering what to do. I mean, they had data embedded in the museum, you know, through the buildings. They obviously had their computer systems. They had all these old texts. And what I was finding going through these um, interviews were that um, basically people using the business systems, they weren't fit for purpose. And these people were very bound down by these awful business systems. And I was thinking, my God, this is like, you know, nearly 2020. <laughs> and we're still delivering all bad systems are still being delivering. And these are people who are very underpaid and have, you know, very little time to do their job. But with these sort of not fit for purpose systems, it was making their job even more difficult. Hmm. And it's just it's just this knowledge they have. And it's not going anywhere and it's not being passed on. And I think, you know, the parallels were drawn to the Florentine nuns, you know, 500 years ago. They're just the highly intelligent women. It's the sense they were given away to pray for their families hmm. and this knowledge wasn't being used. So it's this underutilization. And these sort of systems and systems of power that sort of slow us down. Hmm. Do you, uh, I mean, out, outside of the artwork, do you see that anything is being done about that right now? 
Uh, no, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's something that I've tried to bring to attention, but I mean, it's all wrapped up in, I mean, capitalism. I mean, there must be, there must be reasons why we're still delivering bad systems today. Sure. Because it's not necessary, is it? Right. <laughs> Lack Ex- of funding our site. Yeah, except that it's expensive to, to overhaul systems, I guess, right? Yes, yes, it is. But then, I mean, what's interesting enough, I mean, if we look at the pay device, I was, I was looking at in the Victorian Albert Museum, you know, the people who are working in IT and having worked in IT, I, I, you know, would be getting paid relatively a lot more than the women who are working research who had MAs and PhDs. Hmm. So that was interesting in itself. So, you know, should, should systems cost this much? Was it the fact that they're quite gendered and men's work tends to be more expensive? But Yeah. So what, so what was the timeline? It was... Uh, so you were there for over a year, you said, before? Um... I was there for over a year, but for this project, I really started going on the other two months, because for the last two months, so it was very, very hectic to get this work done. Yeah. And it was done on no budget at all. Yeah. And I mean, part, part of the reason, I mean, why I was using, for example, holograms is I was giving a talk on the politics of code, and this guy who actually worked in holograms um, really enjoyed it and wanted to work with me. So it's that was the sort of free tool I had in my toolbox to sort of bring that into the story. Yeah. So that was a great experience. So, so tell, tell us a little bit more about that experience once. <clears throat> so when you're, when you're in this experience, you're using the hollow lens. Um, are you following these nuns around? Are you interacting with them? How does this work? Yes, it's very, it's very subtle. Um, but basically when you look around the room, there is a, a fabulous room with all these statues. You are seeing the nuns moving around quite slowly. And I've given the nuns, I mean, basically there's a, these are pre-recorded, um, three-dimensional nuns that are sort of, they're placed into their positions through something, um, that the developers who are double me as a company, hmm. um, called Loop Space. And we also had one live nun as well. So there was one nun who could see, who was in my studio about half a mile away, who could actually see what was happening and interact with the public. Oh, so cool. two very different technologies there. Yeah, that's awesome. So was that an actor or was it an actual nun? <laughs> it was anyone who turned up, actually, who had volunteered to be a nun. So what we'd actually basically done is we'd sort of like hacked the cameras in the building a bit and stuck our own camera there. And... I say about half a mile because the V&A is so big. My studio was at the other end of the building. And so we had a nun in there and we created this hollow port, which managed to sort of, you know, create the um, nun into sort of a bitmap, which would then go over the Wi-Fi down into the room. Hmm. And then she could see what was happening. It wasn't always she. <laughs> they could see what was <laughs> happening on um, an iPad. So interact with the person with the hollow lens. Hmm. And does that what, make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. Um, I mean, that is interesting, though, because it's a very distinctly different technology from having sort of uh, 3D modeled nuns. Yes. Um, so so what was the general response like? What was your well, feedback response, on this? The response was really, really good. I mean, I think you've got to remember that sort of a museum audience is very, very different from an art gallery. And people really enjoyed the levels. I think if it was an art gallery, people wouldn't have given it the time. Hmm. People who come to museums, they they want to give it the time. And I gave some literature so they could then explore the collections that had links into this story. Mm. So they really enjoyed the narrative. And and for me, an artwork should be about getting people to talk about things. Yeah. And it really got people talking about things. And that was great. Mm. So for me, it was brilliant. And it got what I wanted out of an artwork. Yeah. Did you... um... Did you find that people latched onto the idea of the these the metal grids? Did people get that, or did that take some explaining, or did they? Oh, no, 
people really, really got that because what I did, I wanted it to work without the nuns. Yeah. Because um, I didn't, re- I wasn't too sure <laughs> because whether the nuns would appear or not. Because <laughs> I was working for a company and they were doing it in their spare time because obviously it was free. Yeah. So in in the back room behind the behind the church there was this whispering gallery. So I had a um, display case with um, magnetic rope memory, magnetic core memory mm. that explained all that, so they could physically see all these. And then it led through a back passage where I'd recreated this medieval nun with a um, nun, I called it, this medieval um, loom um, <laughs> with a soundscape. I taped all the women in the um, research departments and it's very multinational. So I had Korean, Taiwanese, Irish. Nice. So I had their voices sort of whispering in the background and this this sort of loom that I thread with fiber optics sort of glowing. Mm. So that felt, that was sort of representing the transubstantiation of knowledge into the loom. And then when you came around the other side of this gallery, we had all the priests' chasubles, chasubles, which is the outfit the priests wore. Okay. And then I had a case with all the uh, sort of coded embroidery that the nuns coded into the priests' outfit so they could take these hidden, hidden messages between the um, monasteries and convents. Hmm. And also I gave people a sheet so they could actually decode if they wanted to. So people could really get into it and actually work with this as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an experience that you could really spend some time in and really poke the corners out of, huh? And it's quite educational as well, because the thing, as I say about the Victorian Albert Museum, it's because it's applied art, people go there to learn. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're a cabinet maker, you know, you go there to see joints and how things are done. So very much in my pieces, although I wanted it as an experience and an artwork, I also wanted people to learn about it. Yeah. So I had my open studio. It was open for the 10 days it was on so people could see the hollow port and understand the technology and come and talk about it. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like just by nature of the fact that it's so sort of multidisciplinary, I mean, people are going to learn not just about the content of what you're presenting, but um, also sort of what's what's possible with these conceptual art pieces with different sort of media being involved. Is this... um, do you strive for that? Is that kind of part of your artistic process, having so many different sort of technological or media layers? I, th- I mean, to be honest, I use whatever is appropriate and whatever's around me. Yeah. So um, I, it's very much about the concept. And then when you have a concept, the materials have to play into that. Mm. So like, I mean, for example, my other piece like This Much I'm Worth, which is, um, has got so much neon on, the neon was chosen on purpose to sort of like pull in sort of discourses to the sort of sex industry Hmm. where it's very much used or used to be used. Yeah. So the materials are very important to convey the message. Yeah. So who, it it sounds like this project too was a collaborative effort that you had a a couple of people working with you on this. Was that, is that true? Yes, that's true. Obviously I double me who did all the holograms Okay. and I worked with the writer, Laura Hudson, who helped me do the writing for the narrative. So we worked on the story together and generally, just just the um, knowledge within the museum, it was it, it happened through all these conversations with experts in the museum. The piece became alive. But I don't believe anything really happens in isolation. It's because of people, things happen. Yeah. And because of conversations, things happen. Yeah. I mean, I always say artists are like very arrogant film directors. It's like you make a piece and you don't credit anyone. Whereas <laughs> in the film industry, they've got a very good etiquette of um, everyone gets credited. All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show and we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. 
It helps us continue to make great content that you love, and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. I, I, I So I'd like to take a step back a little bit. I mean, so it's one thing to say that, uh, you know, you use kind of whatever materials are appropriate, but. Um, but the fact is, you know, when you're when you're playing with holograms and, um, you know, all these data systems and representing memory and things like this, I mean, clearly you have a background in um, technology and you have to be fairly proficient to to be able to make these things, at least in a reasonable amount of time. So can you talk to me a little bit about kind of what your what your former life in technology was and how it kind of led to this point? <laughs> yes i mean basically i've got about showing my age but nearly 30 years working in technology mm. from the sort of 80s up to now with with and when i say technology it was like i'm developing business systems starting from mainframes sort of like cobol kicks mvs i'll probably ring bells to certain people sure up to sort of quite modern day technologies um and i've also trained as a cabinet maker so it's really like quite diverse skills and i've always been making as well yeah so I mean, in a sense, coding or designing systems is a, is a form of making. So I kind of like physical and I like that sort of mental thing. But because of the, I suppose, the diversity of materials, it sort of gives you, I feel I can go anywhere. I don't feel limited by anything. Yeah. And usually I tend to want to make the things myself. I mean, for many reasons, A, I don't have a budget. Yeah. You know, and B, <laughs> I'm not very good at asking. So, I mean, for example, there's two projects I've done this year that I've been so busy working on where I didn't actually physically make them. I mean, like for this one, I didn't physically do the holograms. I understand the technology, but I didn't physically make them. Mm, yeah, sure. And I don't like that. I, I really don't like losing control. Hmm. Because, you know, yeah. Well, well, why is that? I don't want you to stop there. <laughs> because, no, because I think making is such an important part of the process. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, we talk about sort of one work I did this much on worth that is a massive piece. It's about four meters by one and a half meters, weighing about half a ton. I mean, apart from the neon, I made all of it. So that, I mean, that involves sort of welding, programming, using CAD. But the fact is, when I'm doing this, other pieces come out of it. So when I was actually learning the CAD and the rendering, I sort of made a couple of other sort of pieces on the side, mm. which were new works. And I've also managed to sell some of these sort of CAD drawings that are actually quite beautiful. Mm. So I just think when you're working, all these other things happen. And you have this understanding of the material that I think really resonates within the piece yeah do you, some people would disagree yeah but do you think there's you know how would you kind of compare and contrast the the headspaces between um being really heads down in a technical problem 
being really heads down in sort of thinking through the conceptual part of an artwork and being really heads down in the making part of that. Do you? Uh, they're, they're, they're all completely different worlds. And this is why I could never balance a career with art. So I've done my sort of like 30 years IT and now you do art. You cannot switch between the two of them, especially if you want to do them. Well, I can't. It's, I mean, I can multitask, but not in those different headspaces hmm. because you have to be really rigorous. You have to be really disciplined um, with computing and logical. And I think when you're actually brewing an idea um, in art, you really have to be all over the place. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? And then those two are very, very different. When I'm developing a headspace like making, yes, I could do programming. Yeah. I could program make because they're quite similar in a way. Hmm. But but the idea space, no, that's that's wild. Yeah, that's that's the outlier. That's the different one, huh? That's the that's a different one. Yes. So what what drove you towards that? I mean, you had, I assume, a somewhat successful, if not fully successful, career in technology. What what really drove you into the art world? Well, I always wanted to do it. Money. Yeah. I say straight away. I mean, I mean, technology for me was very much about paying the rent. Sure. And I didn't find a way to escape. I mean, when you think when I was 28, that's when I asked for a redundancy. And that's when I went to do my art degree. And I had a lot of success in my grid degree and I won the scholarship award. But like the day you're out of art college, you have to pay the rent. Right. So, you know, it was much easier for me to go back into computing. <laughs> and that was that was that was that was the sort of months before the Y2K thing. So there was so much work around sort of working in all mainframe systems. <laughs> so just opportunity. It was, it was just paying the rent. I mean, there there is yeah. no funding for artists. There's so little funding. Yeah. Do you do you find that still to be the case thirty years later? Oh, absolutely. It's worse. Yeah. It's absolutely worse. I mean, at the moment, I'm basically living off. Um, we have some sort of like pension. Really, I've just sort of cashed in everything. To be honest, hmm. it sounds completely irresponsible, but I just would regret not ever having done this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the risks you have to take sometimes, right? If you're a working artist. Yeah. What it and you know as as you've as you've really taken on that challenge full bore of of becoming a full-time artist what are the what are the creative statements that you're trying to make what is it that you're um pursuing what are the ideas that you're aching to kind of get out in the world i think it's just it's provoking conversation i mean politics is so lightweight nowadays i think i want to provoke people into deeper conversation hmm. so i mean there will always be along some sort of feminist lines but it's it's about things around me and 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 it's about because I'm not so articulate in a sense verbally, I want to do this sort of through my artwork. Hmm. So it's very much what I want to talk about. And I think maybe what the, I feel the world needs to talk about a bit more. Yeah. And not using, not using the politics to promote the work, the politics, or it, they're, they're so, in, they're so bound up. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe it's part of being older as well, but you, you know, you want your artwork to be successful for you to, to be saying what it's saying instead of, to fit into a success model for the art world, if you know what I mean. Sure. It's not about my success. It's about the artwork actually working. Hmm. So, so you mentioned another piece, um, This Much I'm Worth, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and that one, again, was one that really caught my imagination for sure. Um, and, you know, for me, it's because that's something we talk a lot about on the podcast is how do you quantify the value of artwork and um you know is there an implicit value in artwork and uh how do you actually get artists paid and stuff like that um can you can you talk a little bit about what this piece was and where that came from 
yeah, I mean, the idea, I, th- I think the thing is, an artwork is very much tied up in the provenance of the person. And it's not really about the quality. Sure. I mean, you know, you produce an artwork, which is a glass of water. I think that's already been done. You know, if, if you're incredibly famous, it's worth a lot of money. It's, right. You know, and if you're not, people can't look at it without this background knowledge. People don't trust their own judgment. So in a way, people are looking at that provenance and not the work. That's what it was about. And I think I made a small conceptual piece in 2014. Um which was an artwork which evaluated its own sales price. So I used algorithms that would sort of do a bit of data scraping and look at my provenance. I mean, in the gallery, it would change a bit. So it had sensors on it. People were near, it would go up in price. If people tweeted it, it would change straight away. And that, that sort of won a big prize, which I got £5,000 for. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to make a big one. And this was about making a statement piece sort of playing into the sort of politics of the art world. So I made this sort of 60 centimetre thing into about four metres. <laughs> and because on the old one, I was using cold cathode tubes, Nixie lights. I don't know if people know what that are, but they were using the calculating devices in the 50s. Mm. So they're stacked digits. Right. Which light up. So, I, I mean, obviously, they didn't make them so massive for the big one. So I actually had them blown in neon. So this, I mean, this, you cannot ignore this piece. It is so... <laughs> to use the f word it's so big <laughs> and um it, it worked everyone took notice so and what was it what was the uh sort of algorithms in the background i mean i know it was it was even responsive to kind of who was standing in front of it right that's right because i had two i had the ones that run overnight that just do some basic data scraping and look at the stock markets and stuff like that and arrive at a price but then what i call them is the sort of the entertainment ones that are on board so in the gallery, with the big one, I don't use sensors. I just have cameras. So, again, it does. it's linked into Twitter. So if you tweet it straight away, the price will go up. And as I said, it's just that there's no one standing around. It will sort of drip down quite erratically. Yeah. And then, and then it will go up if, people, if there's crowds. So, um, yeah. But yeah. it had a lot of engagement with it. And the, the interesting thing about having cameras in it, because I put cameras a lot in my artwork, and, and that's that's probably so I can actually see how it's performing and for maintenance. <laughs> it's also really interesting to see how people are interacting with the work. Yeah. And I had a lot of people interacting and spending time looking at it, and that was quite satisfying. Yeah, what were your surprises out of that? Well, you know what? When you show the work in different places, people react differently. So, for example, in London, a very sort of trained art audience, people mm. very much were sort of pointing and looking and talking. But I had it shown in the north of England, and people were just going up and touching and trying to take pieces out. <laughs> and it was just that was interesting to me how how you educate art audiences and how they react and the sort of typical museum goer to just sort of the everyday person. <laughs> sure. I mean, one person even nicked a piece of it. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have it on camera? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> So what does that say about the worth of it? They wanted a little piece to take home with them. (laughs) Exactly. I I hope that skyrocketed the price of it. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, Yeah. I mean, so, I I mean, I love that piece because it's, there's so much out there in the art world that's, um, you know, it takes, takes a long time to get to its point. It's, uh, you know, that you have to really kind of work through it. Um, I, I'm a big fan of of works that really just are what they are. Um, and you know, yeah, I mean, 
they are what they are that that work but again then again you get so much more satisfaction because the complexity of it I mean, if you look at it, it's meant to look over-engineered. Right. Because, I mean, that's what technology does. I think it it hides inadequacy behind the complications. But, I mean, it's such a fantastic piece. It's all all the way these neons are put together, all the screws, all the bolts, all the... So you get that satisfaction as well well from the the joke or the humor of it. Right. You also get satisfaction in looking at this over-engineering. It's like looking at a car engine. It's that sort of satisfaction. Yeah. I, yeah, well, I I love that piece. Is it is that still around? Is it still showing anywhere? Yeah, it's in my studio, so I can't do anything at the moment. It's actually going over to the Mac in Vienna. They've got a big um, biannual in May, May to September on AI. Nice and um, technology. Yeah, and the Mac is I don't know if you know the Mac, but it's again it's like the Vienna massive museum in Vienna. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, some listeners might be able to go and check it out there then. I'm curious. It makes me think of, uh, have you seen the, the Banksy stunt that just happened with uh, the, the, the girl with the balloon getting shredded? What what are your thoughts on that? That is relatively funny. I mean, I find that slightly, probably slightly one-linery. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I hope mine's not too (laughs) one-linery. Fair enough. Yes. Fair I mean, enough. a stunt. You're right. It's a stunt. Yeah, yeah. I I and loved it. And, and you know, I mean, I mean, you know, he's an interesting one. That I mean, I mean, his work's fine. Yeah. The price of it, right? Compared to other artists, it's astronomical, and and it's quite interesting to look at why. Yeah, yeah, a little bit insane. <laughs> mm. But and, and and prices and what you're getting is really important because it's about sustaining an art practice, and I think that's why a lot of people cannot sustain art practices. It's because they don't get paid and their work doesn't sell. Mm. Yeah. Well, so what's what's next for you? How are you figuring that out for yourself? Uh, what's next? Well, I'm absolutely exhausted because I've had three big shows come back in. But um, the next thing is I want to do um, a film with CGI. So um, I'm teaching myself CGI at the moment. Very nice. <laughs> and, but also, yeah, that's because I've hardly got any room in the studio. So it's quite good to be on my computers. Yeah. I've also got a sculptural piece as well, a smaller piece working on the side. Because it's quite nice. If you've got a project that's very computer-based, it's really nice to go and do something physical as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that probably is complementary to working with CGI as well, right? I mean, it's you're still sculpting. It's just in a, in a virtual space. Yes, but to be physically moving around is just so much better. And I have to spend months doing funding applications which is all part of an artist's life. I was going to say, so is that, uh, is that how you're sort of problem solving the, the financial situation from a working artist perspective? Yeah. Yes. Otherwise I'll be getting a job in Starbucks, but yes, that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, best of luck to that. Hopefully you won't have to end up in Starbucks, although the coffee is delicious. So, yeah, <laughs> um, well, so Rachel, how, before we move on to the, the little rapid fire questions, how, uh, how can our listeners kind of stay, stay ahead of what you're doing and keep track of your career? I think that, I mean, the best thing to do is, is like my website, it's, um, 2ra.co. It's quite simple. I just put everything I'm doing on my website. Yeah. Great. And I guess Instagram as well, Roach Lara. Yeah. Well, we will um we will keep our our put 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 your URL in our show notes and keep uh, listeners posted on all of your comings and goings. It's very exciting stuff that you're working on. But before before we finish up, uh, do you have time for a couple rapid fire questions just off the top of your head, shooting from the hip kind of fun stuff? 
Yeah, no, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so this first one will test your British allegiances. Are you, and this is good because we just came out of the Starbucks conversation. Uh, when given the option, is it coffee or tea for you? Uh, tea. A tea always, 100% of the time? Well, no, no, I'd rather have coffee, but um, it's not agreeing with me at the moment. Do you want the medical details? <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick I prefer coffee, but I have to drink tea. All right. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> What is what is your fi- favorite time of day and why? Uh, really early in the morning, about one, two in the morning, because that's when I start working. Mm. I like to sleep in late and I really pick up during the day. Someone yeah. said it's like a diesel engine. Yeah. <laughs> so so you get up you get up at one or two in the morning? No, 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 no. I get up at about ten. Gotcha. I'm quite a late starter. Gotcha, gotcha. Really- and then you work late. Yeah, yeah, I work late. Very nice. I don't why. I, I'm curious why it is that artists do that. I do that. I'm definitely a night owl, but that's a very creative thing. You, you need extreme quiet as well, and everyone's gone to bed then, so there's no distractions. Yeah, there's like this nice feeling about being up when everyone else is in bed. Yeah, it's it's just funny because people that I find are successful in, I guess, quote unquote, normal jobs, they like to get their quiet time by getting up super early. No. The creative types, I think, would prefer to just stay up late. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so uh, last but certainly not least, what what words of wisdom do you find yourself going back to? My words of wisdom. Oh, geez, this is not quick fire. Hold it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. This is an important no, question. Well, it's like my mother says, is don't, don't worry what other people think of you and try and understand yourself. Hmm. Understanding yourself is really important. Yeah. And working, I mean, obviously being kind to others and stuff like that. Yeah, and always in the art world, always be nice to people. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's important to uh, build a reputation is to do good work, right? Yeah, make your own work. Just make your own work and really cooperate with people and just engage with people. That's important. Yeah. Well, Rachel, this has been so much fun to talk to you. Um, I, I really urge our listeners to check out your work. It's very, very interesting stuff. And uh, all the best of luck as you continue to, to create and uh, get deeper into your artistic career. It's We're watching from the sidelines. It's a lot of fun. Oh, it's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. Uh, thanks so much to Rachel for her time. Uh, if you guys want to keep posted, follow along with Rachel, I highly recommend that you do. Check out her website, 2ra.co. 2ra.co. She posts everything there. Easy to follow along with her. And uh, I hope I hope we uh, made some fans for her this week. And if you like what we're doing, if you like this episode, as always, please rate and review this episode. Give us five stars. It helps us grow. It helps other listeners find us. Uh, and it would be so helpful if you could do that for us. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of State of the Art.